Hey guys, stand with me as you open up to Ephesians 5.25. And I'll read it through verse 33. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, just as husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. You can have a seat. Back in the 1960s, Alan J. Lerner wrote the Broadway play King Arthur of Camelot. Listen to what King Arthur said. How to handle a woman. There's a way, said the wise old man. A way been known by every woman since the whole rigmarole began. Do I flatter her? I begged him answer. Do I threaten or cajole or plead? Do I brood or play the gay romancer? Meant something different back then, Troy. Um, <laughs> said he smiling, no indeed. How to handle a woman, mark me well. I tell you, sir, the way to handle a woman is to love her. Simply love her. Merely love her. Love her. Love her. This Broadway play writer wrote something that was so much more gospel-centered than he probably even knew when he penned them. Do we really get the whole meaning of Ephesians chapter 5 and this section regarding men and their responsibility and role to their wives? I'll tell you what, though this series seems to be dragging on for quite a while with a few intermissions in between, I still have so much to learn. I was looking in my notes and the top of them said that it was May 2012 when I last went through this. That was five years ago. I need this reminder as a husband. I pray the Holy Spirit would just, man, motivate us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that husbands, we would love our wives. You might assume that Paul would say to the husband, in light of wives' role of submission, that the husband was supposed to assume your leadership. Or take control. Husbands, function as the head. That sure seems like, you know, what I would think it would say. But there's nothing like that to the husbands here. What's it say to the husbands? 
Love your wives. To the husband, verse 25, it says, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives. Verse 33, love her as himself. He's not invalidating the role of headship of a Christian husband, but he is being majorly emphatic about the real substance of what headship is. It is so much farther than being some sort of strong-willed domination or a dictatorship full of self-assertion. Rather, headship in the scripture is a portrait of redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. Headship of a Christian husband shows itself by a radical self-sacrifice for the benefit of the wife. Love her, love her, love her. In Ephesians, submission is not the dominant theme. Headship is not the dominant theme. Leadership is not the dominant thing. Love is the dominant theme. And that great emphasis of love goes all the way back to creation and even before creation. Even in the book of Ephesians, love is just a repeated exhortation to the church there in Ephesus. In verse, four, uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, with lowliness and gentleness, lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's so practical for the church today. People who are sinners that attempt to live life together. Man, as a church, we need this type of, of mentality. And as two sinners go on to say, I do, in holy matrimony, they need this type of, of action in their life. This imperative to bear one another and forgive with one another and be long-suffering and patient toward one another. Later on in that same chapter, chapter 4, we see that there's this, uh, verse 15 of chapter 4, there's speaking the truth in love. Within the church, we need to be speaking the truth in love. Literally in the Greek, it's worded, truthing in love. Just truthing in love, whether it's speech or writing or some sort of action or your Facebook post, it should be in love and in truth to one another. As we exercise our gifts, the body is edified and built up in love. In chapter 5, verse 2, it says, walk in love or let love be paramount. Or the NIV says, live in love. We've seen in our gospel family series so far that submission, it's true, it's a role of a wife. But just before that, there's to be submitting to one another in love. While the wife has a role of submission, so does the husband. And so do we all to each other. It's to be in love. It's to be in the fear of the Lord. It's the cry of the leadership of this church that love is a distinguishing characteristic of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. We have this intimate community as a church. We, we are a family. We really endeavor to live life together and to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of God. 
being there loving one another. But then on an even more intimate and close union, that of a husband and a wife, man, love is mentioned here six times. Six times in the context of a Christian husband. Love, 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 love. Husbands, this is your call. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Why love? Why not a different verb that corresponds better to submit? Like lead. Oh, I like to lead. You know, oh, I wish that it said lead. Husbands, lead your wife. That's all I needed, God. Let's do this thing. We hop on that train. Husbands, rule your wives. I think I can do that. Direct your wives. I'm simply trying to manage you in your life. It's what she needs, right? Paul knows that even a Christian husband can so quickly fall into the flesh and what was told on the day of the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3, that one of our marks of the fall as husbands is that we will rule over our wives, and that's not in a good way. While she'll try to rule over us, we'll try to, we will rule over her, and it's part of the fall. And the language speaks of dictatorship. And so we're told that there's, there's a counter to that. There's something better that he's created us for in creation. And he's redeemed us towards through Jesus and the blood of the cross. Far from being dominating towards our wives, exploiting our wives, using our wives, and victimizing our wives, we're to be self-sacrificing and laying our lives down for our wives. It's been said that love is to tower as Christian men do the work of husbanding. husbanding. Love is to tower as we do that work. Now, why couldn't God just been a little bit more practical, maybe put in our Bible a little list with a magnetic strip on the back that we could put on our refrigerator that said, husbands, take your wife on a date and to a dinner and a movie once a week. Okay, God, check, did that, you know. And husbands, bring your wife flowers. Okay, did that. She's allergic to flowers. She doesn't like them. They bring bugs into the house and it's a waste of money. But okay, you know, check. You got to do the practical thing, right? Husbands, compose a poem. Check, you know, I can't write poetry. I don't even like poetry, but I should do it. You know, that's what, what women want. That's what women want. <laughs> we expect these kinds of things in the Bible, and many books are written telling men to do those kinds of things, but they're not there. They're not there. Instead, he gives us love in Ephesians chapter 5 in the form of an epic love story. The love of a creator towards his creation. The love of the groom towards his bride. Jesus, his love towards the beloved of his heart. It's a profound display. It's the biggest display of love the world has ever seen. And Paul basically says to us, I can do no better than to recount romance's greatest story. And so I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. He wants to give us a plunging, a deep plunging into a fresh consideration of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. He gives us a basis for love, men. 
There's a basis, there is motivation, there is a model, and it's in Jesus Christ. Everything a Christian husband is to do is found in the person and work of Jesus. He models it, he motivates us, and he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to live it out. And so the submission that a wife is to to live out in verses 22 through 24, that submission is to be romanced in verses 25 through 33. Submission is to be romanced. How do you handle a woman? Mark me well, dear sir, the way to handle her well is to love her. It's a holy responsibility that we have towards our wives. And husbands, look at me. When was the last time you viewed that responsibility in light of the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ? When was the last time? Anything else is less than gospel. Listen to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way, was a Welsh Protestant minister. He was a preacher and a medical doctor who was influential in the reformed wing of the British evangelical movement in the 20th century. He's a well-loved preacher. And he said this, Foolish Christian, have you got so tired of hearing about the cross? Do you know so much about it? Do you understand it so exhaustively that it cannot any longer move you? Ah, you say, I want the higher teaching now. I want detailed teaching now as to how I'm to live the sanctified life. You will never live the sanctified life unless you are always there by that cross. Unless it is governing the whole of your life and influencing the whole of your outlook and your every activity, you cannot leave the cross behind. You are never such an advanced Christian that it is a mere beginning as far as you are concerned. That is the way to make a shipwreck of marriage and everything else. I start there. I continue there. And woe to me if I ever cease to be there. Husbands, we've got to live moment by moment at the mercy seat where the blood of Jesus was shed to make atonement for our sins, where the greatest example of love was put on display that we could follow in Jesus' footsteps, being conformed into the image of Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, I think Aaron taught on this a few weeks ago. It says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love God? No, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. By meditating on the love of God, it will move us to love one another. By meditating on the love of Jesus Christ, it will move us to love our wives. 
This love comes from the night before the cross when Jesus bent down and washed the feet of his disciples, even the feet of Judas Iscariot that Jesus knew full well would betray him in a moment's time. And in John 13, 14, it said, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash... Wait, let me stop you. Your feet, right, Jesus? No, you also ought to wash one another's feet. His love towards us moves us to love and serve one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, our chapter today, but clear back in verse 2, it says, walk in love. But it doesn't stop there. It goes, walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. I can tell you to walk in love all day, but it's less than gospel if I don't throw in as Christ also loved us. Gospel builds community. In this church, meditating on the cross and meditating on the gospel, the best thing we can do as your leadership is continually bring this church before the foot of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb. It will build us up in love toward one another. And the best thing we can do for the community of your home is to bring your family before the foot of the cross in the mercy seat where the blood of Jesus flowed free to wash us of our sins and to give us everlasting life. It's not about the programs and it's less about the practical. It's paramountly about the gospel. Love is learned from a person. It's learned by watching Jesus Christ. Puritan preacher William Jay wrote in a book, Christian Contemplated. He wrote, Who besides an apostle would have thought of enforcing conjugal affection by reference to the love of Christ to his church? But he has done this and has thus represented redeeming love as a kind of holy atmosphere surrounding a Christian on all sides, accompanying him everywhere, sustaining his spiritual existence. The very element in which his religion lives, moves, and has its being. And this indeed is religion. And by the way, when the Puritans used the term religion, they meant bona fide, true, real Christianity. He says, this indeed is religion, not a name, not a creed, not a form, not an abstract feeling, not an observance of times and places, not a mere mental costume or holy dress that we put on exclusively for certain seasons and occasions. No, but a moral habit, a mental taste, the spirit of the mind, which will spontaneously appear in our language, in our feeling, and our behavior by a reference of Jesus Christ as the ground of hope and the model. As we spend time with Jesus, as we abide in Christ, we can do all things, including love our wives. As one commentator put it, Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, 
He says, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. Interesting to think, isn't it? Clear back in the original marriage, Adam and Eve, God had in mind the redemption that would come through Christ and the church. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. What Paul is saying not only answers the objection that marriage is oppressive and restrictive, but it also addresses the sense that the demands of marriage are overwhelming. There is so much to do that we don't know where to start. Start here, Paul says. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. This is the secret that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. Can I say that again? Here's the secret. That the gospel and Jesus, uh, the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. That when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. You guys, I'm sorry. I'm such a fool. I've been married 15 years and I feel like I still don't know anything. And so I'm bringing to you almost like a, a buffet of some of the great gospel-centered men that I've read. Listen to what George MacDonald had to say. Uh, George MacDonald uh, from uh, Scotland, back in the day, he was the pioneering figure in the field of fantasy literature and a mentor for fellow writer Lewis Carroll. Here's what he said. The man who thoroughly loves God is the only man who will love a woman ideally. Who can, love her with the lo- uh, who can love her with the love God thought of between them when he made man male and female? The man, I repeat, who loves God with his very life is the man who alone is capable of grand, perfect, glorious love to his wife. It's the man who thoroughly loves God who spends time in the presence of his Redeemer. That's the only man who will love a woman ideally. We've defined submission on a biblical level, and I want to give a definition for, uh, for leadership or headship on the part of a Christian husband. Love on the part of a Christian husband is defined as an unceasing commitment to his wife, for her highest good. Has that been headship for you husbands? An unceasing commitment to your wife for her highest good? Husbands, love your wives. That's what these words mean. Unceasing commitment to your wife for her highest good. You remember back when we studied about Paul addressing wives specifically, wives submit to your husbands? Do you remember how we looked at the context and the grammar and we figured out through the whole passage that Paul's not writing this for husbands to use on their wives? Wives submit to your husbands. Haven't you read the Bible lately? 
that the grammar of it all shows that it is directly addressed from God to the wife, not God to the husband to the wife, but God to the wife. It's the same. It's a direct address here in our passage today. Husbands, directly addressed. Sorry, wives, this isn't, uh, this isn't for you to be ministered in your quiet time that my husband needs to love me, and so I'm just going to leave this little note on the counter that maybe you should read this and, and re- you should memorize this. You, know, you can do that for me. Lindsay can do that for me because I need it. But, but that's, not the, that's not the process that the Holy Spirit had in mind as he inspired the word. Rather, this case of direct address is for the husbands. He's not telling wives that they should go home and say to their husbands, why aren't you loving me? And when are you going to start loving me? You're supposed to love me. You're not loving me. Rather, it's for husbands to come right now today as we're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to us through his word. To love your wives. Be obedient to love your wives. Remember, when Paul wrote this, it was revolutionary. When Paul wrote this, it was really radical. It was unheard of in the world that Paul was writing to. They had writers in their day, like Demosthenes, who said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, which is basically prostitutes. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitations. And we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children and having faithful guardians of our household affairs. Swoon. Socrates wrote, Is there anyone to whom you trust more serious matters than to your wife? Amen. But he also wrote, Is there anyone to whom you talk less? The marriage bond was nearly meaningless to the pagans of the old days. There was a well-known Jewish prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. The popular rabbinic school of Hillel said man could divorce his wife for anything at all. If there was too much salt on the food, if she was becoming less attractive in his eyes, kick her to the curb. A a rabbi actually named Jesus, Ben Sirach, love the hot sauce, put it, if she does not go as you direct, separate yourself from her. There was a Roman moral code that all obligation was on the wife and all privilege was on the husband. This went so far even to divorce where a wife couldn't divorce her husband the husband who could live in all forms of infidelity. But if the wife was found that she was unfaithful, she was immediately dismissed in the Roman culture. And so Paul confronts with the gospel this Grecian, uh, Turkish, Ephesus area, uh, with, um, and even he confronts our society with a radical alternative of humility and love and submission and self-sacrifice. You guys remember Shel Silverstein who wrote Where the Sidewalk Ends? Well, he also wrote uh, this poem, a song actually. It was a pretty good attack on male chauvinism. This song said, Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and beans. And go out to the car and change the tire. 
wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers and boil me up another pot of tea. Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. (laughs) Now, don't I let you wash the car on Sunday? And don't I warn you when you're getting fat? And ain't I going to take you fishing with me someday? Well, a man can't love a woman more than that. And ain't I always nice to your kid's sister? Don't I take her driving every night? So sit here at my feet, because I like you when you're sweet. And you know it ain't feminine to fight. You know, some of us have been raised in a culture like that. I actually was. (laughs) But we have Paul here, who appeals to husbands to love their wives in a way that one writer said was a bare-knuckle swing at the domestic ethics of his time and our time and our society and our homes. Be a man. Be a man. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 essentially is paraphrased by saying, be a man. Now, of course, that isn't without examining the man. I remember reading a book back in the day by John Eldridge where he talked about William Wallace and that the ultimate man was not William Wallace, Braveheart, nor was it the man who said, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. That's the gladiator, by the way. Those guys aren't real men. The real man is the God-man, the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. And he showed us true sacrificial living. How a real man does not look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. How he's the example of what it is to, in honor and in humility, esteem others as better than himself. And because of that, Philippians 2 says that God has exalted him. It was through his humility that God ended up exalting Jesus, giving him the name that's above every name. And before that man, Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He's the ultimate man. This type of examination daily of the God-man Jesus will teach us lessons that no books, no college could ever do. They're lessons that are ingrained into our heart and pushed down deep and moved by the Spirit to be lived out on practicality day by day. Tim Savage wrote uh, a book that I've used so much in this series called No Ordinary Marriage. And he said, there is, however, an exercise we can perform to derive a more precious understanding of this love. Okay, so if you really want to understand the love of Jesus, here's an exercise to do to work out your brain. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, okay? We must picture in our minds the outer limits of Christ's sacrifice, the two points forming the launching pad and the destination of his love heaven 
certainly represents the point of departure. If we could imagine the incomparable splendor that surrounded Jesus in heaven, we would appreciate how much love was required to pry him loose from such eternal bliss. The cross, on the other hand, was love's destination. If we could imagine the appalling nature of crucifixion, we would gain an appreciation of the depth of love required to embrace a fate so brutal. The reality, of course, is that none of us can fully comprehend either the splendor of heaven or the horror of the cross. They represent polar extremes and encompass a gulf infinitely wide. But it is precisely that gulf that represents the measure of Christ's love. And so the next time, husbands, you're finding it difficult to love your wives because of her attitude, because of that last conversation, because of that look, because of that insinuated tone, because of a lack of intimacy, or because beauty may seem to be fading. You've got to remember the splendor of eternal bliss in heaven where the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, willingly stepped aside from his throne and set aside the privileges of deity, becoming a man draping himself in flesh, living among his creation, being tempted in every form as we and yet without sin, being hated and mocked and schemed against by his own creation that all he ever did was love and speak the truth. And it found its way to a Roman cross of crucifixion, of excruciating pain. And I would say, you know what? We haven't even begun to really love. We haven't even really begun to love our wives. When we think of the love initiated by Jesus that awakened us to love, that aroused us to love him, that called us from love, that incites us toward love, we love him because he first loved us. As the old hymn by Isaac Watts says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except for in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Because his love, that's so amazing and so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Maybe it is good to write a poem every now and then. (laughs) Roses are red. (laughs) Jesus' love is true. You know, I don't know. Write it down contemplate it meditate upon his love men every day before your slippers hit the deck 
contemplate the love of Jesus and cry out that he would empower you to love your wives. It's a radical love. And we're going to miss out on it. If we spend all of our times as men trying to lecture our wives into how they need to submit and respect us, we're going to totally miss out on the awesome privilege and responsibility that is imperative for us to lay down our lives for our wives. Your wife's submission will be drawn out by this kind of love. And that's not why you do it. That's not why we do it is for reciprocation. But we do it because of Jesus. Listen to what Art Azurdia said. This is a friend of ours from Portland. Pastor for many years and it's great to hear some of his counsel and how he counsels marriages that are struggling. He says, throughout the years, it hasn't been uncommon for a husband to say, you know what, Art, my marriage is so cold. There's no real love between us. So I'll ask him, have things always been this way? Oh, no, no. So tell me how your relationship began. As he begins to talk, what begins apparent is that during the dating process, he was as zealous as an Olympic athlete. There was no sacrifice too great to make on behalf of this girl. Every affection and attention and energy was hers. Then something happened that put a stop to it all. They got married. (laughs) He won the prize. So he now moves on to scale new heights. A new job, acquisition of bigger and better things. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the... The wife, who'd grown accustomed to the affection and tension of this man while dating, enters into a marriage expecting it to be more of the same, if not better. But while she devotes more and more attention to him, he devotes less and less attention to her, and finally she basically gives up. Perhaps she even attempts to replace that loss of affection with another kind of pursuit. When a husband complains that his wife has changed since they've married, the proper question to ask may be, who changed her? Because, my dear brothers, very often the wife you have is the wife you have produced. Again, the wife you have is the wife you have produced. Your wife might just be a product of your love or your lack of love. Husbands, as the head and as the leader, you set the thermostat of love in your home. To your kids, to your wife, to your family, you set the thermostat. As we have the worship team come up, this is hard. This is hard. You know, we were here last night, some leaders of the church in one of the back classrooms, and we spent probably two and a half hours here. I was here for three hours, and, and you know, we just spent time reasoning with one another on how well we love you church and we just 
had times of tears and times of shouting and times of hugging and pats on the shoulder and more tears and, and reasoning and thinking. And, and, you know, we just left last night just crying out that the chief shepherd would help us little shepherds love you. And not just say it, and not just give you the hug on Sunday morning. Lord, help us to love our church. And we just kept saying, how? How? You know, it's kind of like marriage sometimes. I mean, it almost seems not right to say it's hard to love your wives, right, husbands? But husbands, sometimes is it hard to love your wives? Sometimes it's hard to love your wives. Is it hard to love the church? Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes. Be honest with you, we get hurt. And we hurt you. Right? It's like marriage. (laughs) We have, you know, there's an old saying, the sheep bite. But you know what? Shepherds slaughter their sheep and eat them. So, you know, (laughs) goes both ways. It can be hard, but it's a joy. Don't get me wrong. It's such a joy, especially it's a joy when we think about the church and when we think about how much Jesus loves the church, the people, you, that he calls you his bride and that he set up responsible men to take care of his bride as under-shepherds. And we just left last night, you know, just, Lord, help us. Help us to know how. We just, we've not arrived in loving the church well. Then, I go to sleep with a chasm between my wife and myself. Telling her about how I don't love the church well. And then I don't love my wife well. Wake up at 4 a.m. and I'm supposed to teach on this in the morning and I'm just, I was just impatient and cruel in the way I'm explaining and I just guys I'm the pastor I've taught this series I've been invited to other cities to teach this series and I need to spend time at the cross of Jesus so I can love Lindsay well and so I had to go you know this morning she's cooking French toast like a good wife should And believe me, I had my own little defense attorney sitting on my shoulder. Here's every reason why I should be frustrated and upset and mad and just let her ponder what I said to her. Not when you think about the cross. Not when you think about the cross. 
the quicker you think about the cross, the, the quicker you are standing behind her, embracing her at the stove, crying out for forgiveness. And eating that maple syrup goodness. Husbands, love your wives. I don't have it figured out. This message was for me today. I go through times, I go through seasons, just like you. Woo, yeah! But the tie that binds is that God has created this whole thing. Sovereign creation of Jesus. God has designed it. It's his creation. And most ultimately, it's for his glory. And God is glorified, husbands, when despite everything that's against you, you forget all that, just like Jesus did. He went to the cross. He showed love. I was praying with my little girl, Lainey, during communion, and she prayed over the bread as we took communion. And just like a seven-year-old would, she just said, I thank you, Jesus, that it hurt you to love me. It hurt you to love me. Husbands, have you hurt yourself to show your wife you love her? Have you gone that far? I could say, date your wives. Write her a song. Make her a mixtape. Whatever. Some of those things might be great. Some of them are bomb. Here's what Jesus said. He said, look to the best romance story ever. Jesus. It hurt him to love his wife. And it was worth it. Have the husband stand up. Wives, will you stretch your arms out towards the husbands? Kids, Stretch your arms out towards the husbands. Lord, we are broken. We are broken, Lord. Some of our marriages suck. Some of our marriages, they are a disgrace. Some of our marriages have never reflected the gospel. Some of us men in this room... Lord, we have been the fall of man towards our wives. We have been cruel and harsh and vindictive. We've been tyrants. And Lord, we grieve and we repent today that love hasn't been the mark of our lives towards our wives. And Lord, we confess as men that we haven't spent the morning meditating upon the cross of Jesus. That you loved the church. That you gave yourself for the church. That you didn't love your self, but you loved your bride. You loved her as you loved yourself. We, we confess we haven't spent the time meditating on the gospel so that we can love our wives. And so, Lord, we just pray today as we just come to this scripture and as we just come to a, a section of a series 
where just the husbands are going to have their worlds rocked. We pray that you would transform us into your image, that you would conform us into your image, Lord. And Lord, that we would go so far as to be hurt so that we could love our wives. Lord, that we would take it. Lord, that we would be doormats. Lord, that we would be the whipping boys. Wherever that may be the case or wherever that's an excuse. Because Lord, you took it. And Lord, you had your creation walk all over you. And you were the whipping boy. Lord, you got whipped for us. To redeem us to yourself. I think of what Hebrews says. You have not yet shed blood in striving against sin. And Lord, that husbands in this place would follow your example at a spare nothing unto death kind of love for our wives. Lord, that you would just crank the thermostat up in our homes. Let us be known for our love to one another in this church from the top down. To one another in our homes from the top down. Thank you, Jesus, for being the example. Let's stand all together and we'll close with this song.